0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Joey Cochran. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Memorial Church. Uh, We have been spending the past number of weeks looking at the story of Jesus, our child king, and today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 3 and we are going to take a turn towards looking at the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And so in today's passage, we're going to see a forerunner to his public ministry. We're going to get to study and learn about John the Baptist as we uh, take this transition to Jesus, our shepherd king, in our Matthew study. So if you have your Bibles, and if you have a a Pew Bible, we have those for you. If you turn to page 808, uh, and would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read our passage today, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So let me ask you this question. Supposing a friend were to come up to you, and that friend were to say to you, hey, look, check this out. You and I, we need to take a short little trip. We need to go out to the Indiana sand dunes, because there's this dude out there, and he's dunking people in Lake Michigan, and he's preaching all of these things, and you need to come and hear it. I want to ask you a question. How compelling is that to you? How much of a spectacle is that to you? Is that a truly exciting, attractive adventure to go on? Is that something that really piques your interest? Because that, I, I think when we come to Matthew chapter 3 and we set the stage for the events that took place, we have to realize that we live in a very different world where we have a sense of marvel and at awe at very different things than the way people did back then. Back in those days, as the text says it right here. You see, if you were to lay out a timeline for each one of our lives, you could lay out a timeline that was based on not just how many years you've lived, but on major spectacles that you've experienced throughout your life. For me, if I were to lay out my timeline, I would be able to tell you about my very first memory of Christmas and the sense of awe and marvel I felt of walking into that living room and seeing that tree all lit up with all those presents underneath and the opportunity to just sit and and open those gifts with my family. Or I would tell you about my first trip to go to Disney World and how as a little boy I went to the most magical place on earth. And I was filled with extreme fear and awe. Because if you know anything about Disney, the secret to their success is to build within children a great sense of fear of the unknown and what might happen, and a sense of awe. In fact, If you really believe that the world has been disenchanted, Disney's main goal is to re-enchant your imagination and to fill your life back with enchantment. I'd also tell you about when I met Phil Mickelson. Do you guys know who he is? He played golf. Yeah, so I, I used to love going to the Colonial and going to the Byron Nelson Classic, and I got to shake the man's hand. And for me, that was a very memorable personal encounter with a very interesting person. Or I, I tell you about the time when my wife and I went on our fourth anniversary to go see Wicked, the musical. <laughs> just in case you guys didn't know. <laughs> we, we weren't doing anything Wicked. We, we were just going to watch Wicked take place. Uh, or going to see Hamilton. Uh, I I said this in first service. If Johnny and Todd were here, Pastor Johnny and Pastor Todd were here, and I were to say right now that Messi is going to be in town and he's going to be playing an exhibition match, they would go straight for that. I'm more of the musical type of a guy. In fact, I, I can't help but say Like, my greatest delight would get to go see Les Mis, and get to meet Javert, because he's actually my favorite character in the Les Mis musical. Now, partly I throw that in there only because Todd talked about Les Mis last time, and it'd be really great to just kind of continue that on. So, but it's very true that our lives can be actually traced out by spectacles, And the world has actually kind of engineered that for us. In fact, we're kind of designed to be drawn into the things that cause us to marvel and to be filled with awe. And over the course of the last hundred years, the secular world, our secular world that we live in, has tried their very best to make the best substitute they possibly can for the things that the church did throughout history to be the place that fills us with awe. When you really think about it, the Apple keynote address is a really bad sermon. That's what it is. Telling you about cutting-edge things that you really need for your life. That's what the keynote Apple address is. Rock concerts, really great rock concerts, are a substitute for worship. It's filling the hole that preaching and worship has left in the secular world. Going to Disney World is a pilgrimage, not too different from the kind of pilgrimage these people took in chapter 3 of Matthew to go out into the wilderness and see John. And I don't know which is more torturous, going out into the wilderness or waiting in really long lines at Disney World. But both aren't super attractive places, even though one is filled with attractions. Spectacles are meant to fill us with awe, and they're also meant to give us a momentary euphoric experience that gives us a sense of longing. And it's not just the kind of experience that we get to spectate, we get to watch at the spectacle, but the best kind of a spectacle is the one that invites you in to participate. That's actually what makes the Apple Keynote address pretty fantastic, is you get to eventually walk away, go into an Apple store, and you get to have that device that they told you about. And then you get to participate in the experience that they talked about. It's not just something you spectate, you become a participant. For Johnny and Todd, better than watching Messi would be getting to be able to play with Messi. Maybe even shamed by him on the field. Watch him do some good moves around him and score an awesome goal. For me, I, I would love to be Javert. I'd love to sing Stars. I don't know if you would love to hear that, but I would love to do it. And I do it in my car all the time, on repeat, and I try to hold that really long note. I don't do it super well. But see, when we think about Matthew chapter 3, that is exactly what's happening, is you have a spectacle with a person, John the Baptist, And he's in a a unique place, a place that you and I wouldn't normally want to go to. But he's in the wilderness, and he's drawn all of these people. In fact, the city, the comfortable place, Jerusalem, the surrounding countryside of the suburbs of Judea, and the entire region have emptied out, and they've gone into this arid place, this dry place, where In their time, when they thought about the wilderness, they thought, this is where the demons dwell. This is where death is. And they came to listen to a man and to watch him perform an action, and they got to become participants in the spectacle. They got to walk into the waters of baptism and actually be involved in a cutting-edge religious experience, because baptism wasn't something that was widely practiced, It was somewhat of an innovation in that time period. As religious Jews, they would wash their hands before they went into the synagogue to demonstrate the fact that they've been purified or they've been cleansed. But they didn't normally go into the waters and be completely submerged into them and brought out. And there was a speech act that took place. Not only was John the Baptist proclaiming many things, but they also got to proclaim many things, the participants there. In fact, the text tells us in verse 6 that they came confessing their sins. And in confessing their sins, they were able to make themselves known and become known in some sort of way, both to God and to John the Baptist, the preacher, And to one another. In fact, this whole pilgrimage experience was a huge community experience. And draws like this only kind of come once in a lifetime. And that's something that we should really kind of think about. Like these people did not know what was coming next. For all they knew, this was a once in a lifetime experience. I was raised Roman Catholic and I remember somewhere around the year of 2000 Pope John Paul II was coming to America and he was going to do this travel through America and it was such a huge deal for Roman Catholics to get to go and see Pope John Paul. For evangelicals, Billy Graham and actually Roman Catholics too, when Billy Graham comes to town it's a spectacle that draws all sorts of people. Because Billy Graham was such a powerful preacher, someone who proclaimed God's word so boldly and so powerfully. In the 19th century, I'm sorry, that's not accurate, and I'm a historian, I should say things right. In the 18th century, probably the closest parallel between Billy Graham and John the Baptist himself because Jesus says that no prophet has arisen as great as John the Baptist, was George Whitfield, And George Whitfield had the ability to draw such large crowds out into the field. Thousands of people would go out to hear this man preach. And men would ride out in horseback ahead of his planned path for his preaching so that people would know that George Whitfield was coming and people would marvel and be filled with awe to get to go hear George Whitfield. Ben Franklin, a complete deist, thought that there was no better speaker that he ever heard than George Whitfield, and he became more or less obsessed with the guy. Jonathan Edwards was astonished with how amazing and how powerful of a person George Whitfield is. John the Baptist had that exact same kind of appeal. He had this powerful personal appeal that drew people in. And when you look at Matthew chapter 3, you have to see that the actual performance, the event, the action only takes up two verses of the entire text. It's verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. But if you look at the rest of this entire text, it's not just about what John the Baptist performed, even though that's what his name is, the baptizer, and that's how his reputation became so great. But it was the powerful preaching. It was the power of his proclamation. Herman Melville... In a book, Moby Dick, you guys heard of it, Moby Dick? It's kind of a really long book. Nobody ever reads it, but everybody likes to talk about how they know this book, you know? Call me Ishmael. That's the first line. If you want to really impress people at a party, just say the first line of Moby Dick is call me Ishmael. It's like the famous sentence. But he has an entire chapter about the pulpit. And he says this. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete. And the pulpit is its prow. Now, if you know anything about nautical stuff, and usually this is the point when I become really scared. Like in the last service, I started talking about civil engineering, and Bill Epema kind of got interested, and I was like, did I just say something wrong about engineering and roads? Now I'm going to talk about nautical stuff, but this is pretty simple. The prow guides the ship. Like, it's the thing that causes the whole ship to move forward. And what Herman Melville is saying is that there was a time in history where what happened behind this little wooden stand guided the world. Like, it was the place where news happened. It was the place where people heard a word from God. It was the place where people felt compelled to respond and to do something and to act differently with their lives. It was the place where all of the authority and all of the capital really existed. Now, we've fallen on very different times where, quite honestly, there's a lot of bloggers that are more powerful and have more authority than people that preach in a pulpit. Like, it's, it's really true. Um, and celebrities at the Academy Awards have a lot more power and have a lot more authority than people speaking behind a pulpit. What an athlete says, in, in fact, actually, if you want to know the secret to evangelistic outreaches, it's you either get an athlete to preach the gospel or you get somebody that's able to rip a telephone book in half. That's the secret. We, we haven't given this place the same amount of power and authority that it once had. And one of the things that this passage invites us into thinking about and reflecting about is where is the authority? What are the things that really moves our heart and stirs our affection? For a lot of us, and, and I'm going to be right there with you, My affections really get stirred by George Lucas and The Last Jedi, quite honestly. And those spectacles have messages that are meant to craft and create culture and to define and to change and transition culture in particular directions. And they do it really, really well. This is what John the Baptist is functioning as. He is somebody who's fostering anticipation and excitement. He's fostering a sense of marvel so that people would want to participate in something new that is happening. John the Baptist baptizing people in the River Jordan is creating culture and is transitioning culture, and is changing culture, and is filling people with all sorts of anticipation about what is up ahead. And his message is super simple. It's, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Matthew, the gospel writer, uses these specific words intentionally and refreshes them in our minds in the very next chapter. Because John the Baptist functions as the forerunner. And he's going to do the exact same things that Jesus does. So if you just turn the page to chapter 4, verse 17, it says at the very onset of Jesus' ministry, which I'm kind of stealing a little bit of thunder from some preacher going on down the road. But it says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, Is at hand. Now, John the Baptist is fulfilling Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 40, it says this, and I'm going to actually turn to it because I'm going to read a little bit on further. It says in verse 3 A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So like I said earlier, I was going to talk a little bit about civil engineering, and I'm not super expert on civil engineering, but. If you're going to make a road, if you're going to make a way for people, you're going to have to do certain things, okay? You're going to have to clear that road of any obstacles that are set out in front of it. In fact, what you might do is you might dig up some of it because there are going to be things beneath the surface that are going to affect the integrity of the surface of the road. And you're going to clear all of those obstacles out. And then you're going to go through and you're going to level everything out. Because nobody wants to drive or have a cart, like in these days, on an uneven road. You want it to be a right and a sure path and a level path that's easy. Not one that you're going uphill all the time or one that you're going downhill all the time and it's possibly going to careen out of control. You want a level and a straight path. Now, John the Baptist's message. His message is for there to be the crooked ways in life made level again, made right, made straight. His message is to tell everybody to prepare themselves for that path. The kingdom is coming, and we want to be ready for the kingdom. Now, All of the people who are here getting baptized, they're unsure of what shape this is going to take. They don't know that Jesus is coming up on the scene. They don't have the advantage that you and I have, where we live after the cross. So they're just filled with anticipation. Something astonishing and marvelous is about to happen. And we need to ready ourselves. So they decide that they are going to purify themselves. They're going to go into the waters and symbolically do an action that represents the fact that they're turning in their way of life because they want to be in preparation for this king because you want to be ready to meet the king, right? Like, you're not going to come to the king all a mess. You're going to be cleaned up. You're going to be pure, and you're going to be ready to meet this incredible person. And so they do the thing that makes most sense. They wash themselves off. Now, for these Jews who are being baptized in the Jordan River, it's meant to refresh in their minds major historical events that took place in the history of Israel. And all of these events had to do with a deliverance from a judgment and an entry in to a new stage a new way of culture, a new way of life. So in 1 Peter 3, we have the picture of baptism being just like Noah's Ark, where Noah and his family pass through the flood waters and are delivered from judgment and are put on the dry ground again into a new stage of life, of new life. For the Israelites who are held captive in Egypt— They were delivered from their bondage of slavery and they passed through the Red Sea and then they entered into the wilderness and they sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years and then God delivered them from their wilderness journey and they passed through the Jordan River as well. And when these Israelites are coming to John the Baptist and they're getting baptized, All of these images of passing through waters are refreshing in their minds, and they're remembering how God has delivered them in the past, and how he's doing it now again. Now, for a lot of these people, they're thinking, well, maybe God's going to deliver us from Roman rule. Or maybe God is truly going to do something that is spiritual, and is incredible, and is marvelous. Now, so they're making their crooked ways right in preparation for all of this stuff and they're repenting and they're building up anticipation for the fact that there is a king who is coming and they want to ally themselves to him and they're also being delivered by judgment. That's essentially the message that's being given. But there are some pretenders who are coming along. And John the Baptist has a specific message for these pretenders. He says to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're just pretenders about what's going on. Because you see, anytime that there's a spectacle, there's going to be those who are truly participants, those who are really excited, those who are all in and wanna be a part of these things. And then there's going to be those who are, just simply curious. They're wondering. They are checking things out. They want to know. And there are going to be others who are actually there because they're deceivers. And they're judging. And they're scheming. And they're putting together plans. Maybe they want to mimic the spectacle and create an even better, more compelling spectacle. Maybe they want to sabotage the spectacle John the Baptist anticipates this and he sees these Pharisees and the Sadducees and he says, you pretenders. You aren't actually real before God. You're just here for show. And God has a place for those who are here for show because there's actually no real fruit that's going to be produced. And John the Baptist exhorts them and reproves them and he tells them you need to turn away you need to repent you need to produce real fruit in your lives and all the other crowds are there listening and it's hitting them between the eyes and so it causes them to be real before god it causes them to make true confession about areas of their life that need to be brought into the open that need to be exposed, that need to be brought to the light. Now, I'm going to give very simple applications for this message because it's a simple sermon that John the Baptist preaches. He preaches, repent for the kingdom is near. And my application should be just about that simple too. But I can add something else to it. You see, we live on this side of the cross from where John the Baptist lived, and from where all of these people came to participate in baptism. We are told on this side of the cross to repent and to believe. And we're told to repent and to believe because we know that us sorting out and making our crooked ways straight in anticipation for a king isn't enough. What we need is we need a king who can actually make that crookedness lifelong straight. The one who can actually make the defining definitive correction in our life. The souls of ours that are bent inward upon ourselves, only he can bend out towards himself. And so we need to believe that he has the power and the ability to do that. And so when we're on this side of the cross, we can look back at the cross and we can see that Jesus was delivered over to judgment and he passed through the waters of death, just like Jonah went into a whale and passed down into the waters as if he were dead and was spit out again. Jesus rose to life And when we as Christians think about baptism, we don't think about just a purification, a cleansing. We think about a life-altering transformation where we walked in death and now we walk in complete life. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to repent and believe in Christ and we need to have a posture in our hearts that is of ongoing repentance, which means we need to have a posture of ongoing confession. Now, as a pastor, and as somebody who used to be Roman Catholic, the idea of confession has certain pictures that are connected to it. Now, I remember being a little boy and going to confession and telling a priest about my sins, and they were often pretty petty things, like I lied to my mom, or I tripped my brother when nobody was looking, you know, things like that. Because I didn't really understand how to be transparent. Nowadays, uh, as, as a pastor in my 30s, it's really interesting because most of the time when people call and they wanna to talk to a pastor, they usually don't say, I, I need to confess something. Usually they say a different word. I need counsel about something, I need some counseling. And what's really interesting, and this is the interesting part of the whole counseling phenomenon, is that in many ways, counseling is a substitute for something that we've kind of lost in the church, which is confession, of just bearing out our sins before others and letting them know we're weak, we're feeble, we're broken, and we don't just need Tips and advice and ways to manage trauma. But what we need is we need help with our sin and we need a solution for our sin. We need a solution for our sin. And the only solution that there is is the solution that's given to us in this story of the Gospel of Matthew. That solution is Jesus Christ. And If we follow Jesus Christ and if we walk in repentance and if there's fruit being born in our life, there's going to be something corollary to that. We're going to be different. Our lives are going to be different. And they're going to be different from our friends that don't know Christ. Our lives are going to be different than our secular world that we live in. In fact, we might make very conscious decisions that other people are going to think are quite odd because we want to take the obstacles out of our way that keep us from being in the way of the kingdom of heaven. So, for instance, you might give up your smartphone, you might switch to a flip phone, and the rest of the world is going to be like, You gave up the keynote address product? Like, how did you do that? Why did you do that? That's just weird. But it's really true. Like, I know guys, 20-something-year-old guys that only know a world that has smartphones, pretty much, who have opted to give it up because it has been too great of a temptation for them, whether that's a temptation for pornography or a temptation for just complete diversion, temptation to keep them from productivity, They've decided that they just want to be disengaged and disconnected from this kind of thing. John Calvin, he writes this in reference to Isaiah 40 and John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 3. He says, "'There are intricate and crooked windings in the world, "'but through such appalling difficulties, "'the Lord makes a way for himself.'" and breaks through by incredible means to accomplish our salvation. You see, regardless of what the path looks like for Jesus Christ, his kingdom is coming. Judgment is at hand. If there are still obstacles in the way, he has the power to remove that. And he has the power to remove that for you. He has the power to remove that for me. And he has a power to clear the way for his kingdom no matter what. But he's invited us into this liturgy that we have here, he's invited us into this culture, in this world. To not be like our secular age and to just buy into some substitutes for preaching and for worship, but to participate in something that is real, is genuine, is authentic. And he's invited us to go to him to have our crookedness straightened out. And he's offered us all sorts of genuine and real ways to care for our souls. He's offered us things like small groups so that we can confess to one another our sins and to share with one another our burdens. He's also given us something to participate in. He's given us baptism. And we're going to have baptism again this coming up and later in January. A simple application to the sermon is if you haven't been baptized and you want to participate and actively proclaim your part in Christ's kingdom, the great first step is to actually get baptized and say, I'm claiming Christianity as part of my life because it is the introductory symbol and profession that you are a Christian. And the Lord's Supper is the ongoing practice that we have as a family to demonstrate The gospel and our deep belief that our crooked ways have been straightened out by somebody whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled on our behalf. I want to encourage you today to have the enchantment reawakened within you. You see, well, not the last time I preached, because I did preach here in June, but you may not remember this, but I actually preached on January 1st, 2017. And in that sermon, I preached about waiting and worshiping and about how all of life is filled with liturgies. I want you to be invited into seeing what happens here on Sunday morning as the most astonishing, marvelous, enchanting spectacle that takes place And it takes place on a weekly basis, and that invites you to participate and enter in to this liturgy of the kingdom, of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And it's not just something that we're remembering, but it's something that we're continuing to anticipate. Just because Advent is over doesn't mean our anticipation ceases, Our anticipation only continues to build because we anticipate a God who is going to return and who's going to correct every wrong and put every right in order. And he's going to rightly judge everything. And he's going to separate the chaff out from the wheat. And the fruit-bearing wheat are going to get to enjoy everlasting euphoria and exaltation with him in heaven. And it's going to be better than anything a keynote address can offer. It's going to beat anything that a uh, rock concert can offer. And what we do each Sunday is a foretaste, is a rehearsal, is a practice of what that heavenly experience is like. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that our crooked ways can be made straight. And just as crooked lines lead to Jesus Christ, our crooked ways press us towards Christ. And they lead us on a level path and a sure path that's towards his kingdom, because we turn from those ways and we turn with marvel and anticipation and excitement to somebody who removes the obstacles for us, who took away our sin upon the cross. Lord God, just as we sang earlier, would these truths help us to have a closer walk to thee." That we would walk in this path towards your kingdom with marvel, with excitement, with deep anticipation, and would we participate by participating in baptism and participating in the proclaiming of God's good word to one another, confessing our sins, turning away in believing together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.